everyone. Welcome to the Warren Letter Podcast. Good afternoon to those on the East Coast and good morning to those on the West Coast. This is your host, Russell Warren. I'm the author of The Warren Letter, which is a weekly newsletter that goes out to subscribers. It talks about investments, crypto, land investing, uh, markets, and geopolitical issues. Um, I'm also the host of this podcast, The Warren Letter Podcast, which uh, discusses some things that are better put in a audio format as opposed to a newsletter format. So let's uh, let's get started here today. I want to talk about this week in markets to start off. Uh, it's been a volatile week in markets. The S&P uh, was down 2.5% this week. The NASDAQ also had a negative week, down 3.5%. Uh, bonds actually surprisingly didn't do too bad. Bonds Bond prices were up. The yield on the 10-year is is now down to 1.927%. Uh, this reflects a little bit of the risk-off that was going on with the rise in the U.S. dollar, the increase in the price of gold, um, and the uh, increase in bond prices. The 10-year yield was above 2% briefly for about two or three days, and then it dropped uh, pretty significantly from there. Uh, the price of oil is still above $90 a barrel. Um, natural gas at 444. I expect this expect this to rise pretty fast over this week, depending on the cold weather. Um, gold, the big the big news in gold. Gold has been uh, on a rocket ship this past uh, week or two. We're sitting at 1980 cents, so right at 1900, uh, which is exactly where I thought it would be, and it's likely to go even higher here soon. Uh, silver, silver sitting at about uh, twenty three ninety five, about twenty four dollars. Um, this is a little lower than I suspected it would be, especially with the uh, inflation news, inflation numbers that we've got. Um, but usually, the precious metals are a little slow to react to these things. Um, interestingly enough, uh, with all the inflation headlines and the geopolitical news, uh, crypto crypto is not doing too well. Uh, crypto. Briefly dipped below forty thousand this afternoon. It's sitting at right now at uh, forty thousand one thirty eight. Um, this is a far cry from from the highs that we experienced in December, uh, where Bitcoin is actually down forty percent from the highs. So if you bought Bitcoin at the highs, you're now not sitting down forty percent. Ethereum, uh, which was above four thousand at one point, is now down to two thousand seven sixty two. Uh, again, surprising, you would think, with uh, uh, the increased uh, inflation numbers, geopolitical stuff going on, that, that Bitcoin and, and Ethereum, a lot of the cryptocurrencies would be doing well. Um, this really presents an argument against uh, Bitcoin in terms of an inflation hedge, in terms of a, uh, uh, you know, a risk mitigator, because, I mean, clearly it's not performing well in this risk-off environment. It's really almost tied to the NASDAQ at this point. And so you really, if you're a crypto investor, you really have to think about the, the thesis, uh, the reason that you're investing in crypto. Is it, is it because you think it's an inflation hedge? Is it because you think it's new technology that's going to perform well? Um, you know, I, I think you have to look at kind of the performance in this environment to really, really uh, be introspective about, why you're investing in crypto if you are. So uh, 
I know that everyone's probably sick of the Russia-Ukraine headlines and hearing about Russia and Ukraine. Um, but it's something that on this podcast and in my newsletter, I've been sounding the alarms on for months. I think I first highlighted this risk back in November. And on this podcast, I have had numerous guests who have discussed the ever-increasing risk of a tension between the U.S. and Russia over Ukraine, the uh, mobilization of Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. And I've been screaming from the rooftops uh, as loud as I can, um, sounding you know the alarm for this risk. And I told investors, get into gold, get into oil. You know, and since then, oil is up 30% since I've been screaming to get into gold and oil. Gold is up 11% since I've been telling investors. And the invasion hasn't even started yet. And I think that, you know, on Twitter and my newsletter, um, on this podcast, I've been really warning investors. I've been really telling investors where to go. I've been, I've been sounding the alarm in this geopolitical stuff for a long time now. And I, I've frankly not gotten any kind of credit for my calls, any kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, accolades or anything. I mean, I've been on this for months before anyone, any of the mainstream uh, pundits, any of the people on Twitter even consider this a real threat. So I've been screaming to buy oil and buy gold for a long time. And I, uh, you know, I think uh, I deserve some credit for it. It's unfortunate because, you know, this this uh, Russia and Ukraine situation is going to be catastrophic uh, to the especially to the citizens of Ukraine, but also to the world. And so I just wanted to to kind of toot my own horn for a little bit here and just say, you know, as hopefully as listeners to this podcast, you've um, you've been able to take those steps and uh, and listen to what I've been saying and sounding the alarm for a long time. But I'll, I'll get to Russia and Ukraine situation at, at the end here. But I want to focus on some interesting news that I've kind of pulled out. One of the more interesting top news topics that has gotten swept under the rug from this uh, Ukraine-Russia situation is the Fed approves rules banning its officials from trading stocks, bonds, and cryptocurrencies. Now, if you remember a few months ago, back in October, that um, there was this huge scandal about a lot of Fed officials were um, trading or back in the early days of the pandemic were trading uh, indices, were trading bonds uh, and, and individual stocks even before the Federal Reserve would announce, uh, you know, monetary policy. And so they were basically able to front run what they knew was policy. So, I mean, this amounts to you know, insider trading by the definition, right? They knew what the Federal Reserve was going to do and they were able to front run those trades. And so um, I think it's damaged the credibility if they had any left of the Federal Reserve. I think uh, these rules are a little bit too little too late, but I think this is something that uh, that really needed to happen. I'm surprised it hasn't happened. You know, this hasn't been implemented previously. Um you know, and now the regulations are going to say that they're going to ban cryptocurrencies or ban Fed officials from uh, trading in cryptocurrencies, which is which is interesting because that was not included in the previous rules discussion in October. And so I'm wondering if that is a signal that the Fed is going to do something on cryptocurrency in terms of regulation or 
you know, what the reasoning is behind the Federal Reserve Rule Board adding uh, cryptocurrency to that mix. That's, that is uh, is very interesting. Uh, the article says that the rules, quote, aim to support public confidence in the impartiality and integrity of the committee's work by guarding against even the appearance of any conflict of interest. Uh, central bank officials af- acted after disclosures last year revealed that several senior Fed officials have been trading individual stocks and stock funds just before the time the central bank adopted sweeping measured sweeping measures aimed at boosting the economy in the early days of the COVID spread. So again, this is, uh, you know, I, again, I think this is too little too late, but I'm, I'm happy that, you know, they're acting on this. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous, ridiculous to allow fed officials who control monetary policy to be able to front run and trade on that monetary policy. Um, you know, so I, again, uh, I think this is a good thing, but again, I think it's a little, too little, too late. Um, a second piece of interesting news before I get to the uh, Ukraine Russia situation and the updates on that is the January home sales number. January home sales jumped six point seven percent despite a record low supply. So the, the housing market is still getting squeezed um, from record low supra- supply. Um, the supply of homes for sale fell to a record low, down 16.5% from a year ago. Tight supply with strong demand pushed the median price of a home sold in January to 350000 which is an increase of 15.4% from January of 2021. That is huge. That That is uh, basically um, the cost to buy a house has gone up almost 15.5% in a year. I mean, in terms of uh, the way the Fed measures inflation, I mean, that 15.5% for home prices is is huge. I mean, the Fed says that inflation rate is 7.5%, but if it costs you 15.5% more to buy a house, I mean, how, how is that really affecting the average American? That is, that is huge. Um, and saying sales of previously owned homes in January rose 6, 6.7% from December to a seasonally adjusted annualized rate of 6.5 million units. Um, again, uh, this is all very, very inflationary. It is likely that these this increase in home prices is here to stay, at least for the shorter term. This is going to uh, affect the psychology of inflation and the psychology of inflation being that once prices reach a certain level, it's very difficult to uh, ratchet those prices down. Um, once people are used to paying a certain price, people are used to getting certain wages, it's uh, paying certain prices for goods. It's very difficult uh, psychologically to, to go back from that. And so I think uh, the Fed is really behind the curve here. Um, I think this number probably shocks them. And I think that, um, you know, I think that they're, they're really in a, in a tough bind because of how inflationary this statistic really is. It says seller traffic is very, very low, implying that inventory is struggling to make the turn. Realtors are indicating multiple bidding wars are still happening. Tight supply and strong demand pushed the median price of a home sold in January. The price is being somewhat skewed by the fact the bulk of sales activity is on the higher end of the market. Supply is the leanest on the low end. Homes priced between 100000 and 250000 were down 23% from a year ago. 
while sales of homes priced between 750000 and $1 million rose 33%. So basically, this is saying that the uh, the lower range of the market, between 100000 and 250000 um, were down, but the uh, the homes priced seven hundred fifty thousand, you know, and a million and up were up thirty nine percent. Homes are selling extremely fast, with an average nineteen days to go under contract. So, as a realtor here in the state of New Mexico, um, I focus on ranches and recreational properties. But I can tell you that um, how you know the inventory is extremely low. Everyone who's wanted to um, sell their ranch or, um, you know, cash out on their ranch has done so already. So it's very difficult as a realtor to find people who want to sell. But if you can find the inventory and people who want to sell, these ranches are selling um, site unseen, contracts contingent upon inspection, and they're selling the same day that the ranch is listed. So, I mean, you have uh, just, just a, an extreme inflationary pressure in both sides of the real estate market, both the residential and the uh, recreational side, the ranch and farm side of the real estate market. And I mean, like I said, once these properties hit the hit the MLS, they go live on these websites like land and farm, landbroker.com. The, uh, the pace at which they're selling is just extraordinary. I mean, all cash offers above asking price without sight unseen, without even seeing the property. And so it's, you know, I could feel it personally. I'm sure you can all feel it personally. Um, but this housing market is, is it looks like it's its going to stay crazy for a little while. And finally, the uh, some local news here in New Mexico. The governor said that uh, the mask mandates are officially canceled. I think we were New Mexico was one of the last states to cancel the mask mandates. And so I think um, this this just shows that we're moving past the pandemic into the endemic stage where people are just going to uh, agree to live with COVID to um, understand that COVID is, you know, always a risk similar to the flu, similar to other, you know, respiratory diseases out there. And I think we're finally moving to a stage where COVID headlines are going to be minimized and we're going to be moving on to other things. So I think that is a good thing. Um, and I, and I'm glad that the mask mandates here in New Mexico are, are over with, and I'm very excited about that. Okay. So now turning to the big story, the story that's on everyone's mind and, and what's been affecting markets, I think more so than people realize is this conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And like I said, it at the early, the beginning of the podcast, I've been, on this story, and I've been I've been sounding the alarms on this story since November. Um, I just all the signs were there to me that this was not a bluff by Putin. This was not a um, you know a mere exercise. This was not a way to negotiate uh, better deals. This was the real deal invasion, and this was coming uh, very soon. And I've been interviewing people on the ground. I've been interviewing uh, geopolitical experts on this podcast and writing about this in my newsletter for a long, long time. And it seems now that it's finally coming to an head. The uh, uh, mainstream investment channels like CNBC, the mainstream media are coming around to this idea that this is not a bluff by Putin, that these uh, troops are being staged for an invasion. And so, um, 
you know, I hope you all have been listening to this podcast and to this newsletter and kind of, um, you know, use this knowledge to your advantage. Um, I've been saying go long oil for the last, you know, 30% rise, go long gold. And I think those are still good, good strategies. I think once the invasion starts, oil is going to jump way above a hundred dollars a barrel. Gold's going to be above 2000. Um, and, you know, uh, I've seen a lot of criticism on Twitter saying that, you know, you're investing and profiting, profiting on war. You're hoping for war and this and that. And I want to be very clear. That's not what I'm doing. I always say I pray for peace. I hope that a peaceful diplomatic solution is uh, reached. But the thing is, as an ordinary citizen of the United States, as an investor, I can do nothing but trade the market in front of me. I have no influence over what, what Vladimir Putin does. I have no influence over what Joe Biden does. All I can do is position myself to, you know, financially do as best as I can for myself and my family. And I hope you all do the same way. I mean, I think it's silly um, to say I'm not going to invest in in oil and gold because I don't want to profit on the fact that a war is coming. Um, You know, I think all we can do is trade what we have in front of us and, and position ourselves the best we can. And so I just wanted to get that out there. I've been getting a lot of criticism about that. And so I just wanted to, to discuss that. And so just a brief history. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people know kind of how this whole thing started about what what's going on with Ukraine and Russia. But for those who don't know, just a very brief history. So the Russian Empire uh, since the 1600s, has had Ukraine going back and forth as part of Russia and as an independent state, as part of different empires, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, as well as the, the Third Reich uh, took over uh, Ukraine for a very brief period. So Ukraine has always been kind of this uh, battleground between the Russian Empire, uh, Eastern Europe and Western Europe. So there is a lot of cultural similarities between certain parts of Ukraine and Russia. There are a lot of Ukrainians who believe that they are Russian. They speak Russian. Uh, they, they support uh, Russia politically, things like that. And so in 2014, there was a what's called the Maiden Revolution as part of these uh, series of color revolutions that went on in Ukraine or went on in other parts of the world as well, where a pro-Western government uh, was, was basically came to power and supported the idea of Ukraine joining NATO, um, joining the EU. And now from Vladimir Putin's perspective, this is a fundamental uh, threat to his security by having a country on his border. If you look at the map, Ukraine is on the border of Russia um, that is part of NATO and part of the EU. Um, historically, there was a kind of buffer zone between the NATO countries and between Russia, which was, you know, Ukraine, Latvia, Belarus, all those countries there were kind of this buffer between the NATO countries and between Russia. So in 2014, when this revolution happened, there has been accusations that America um, either funded it or helped start it or was involved in this maiden revolution to support uh, installing a pro-European, pro-NATO government in Ukraine. So Vladimir Putin views this as a distinct threat to his uh, to his safety of his country. And so he sent 
um, uh, Russian mercenaries, what they call little green men and other troops to parts of Ukraine that were very, very distinctly Russian, Crimea and the uh, uh, um, Donbass area of Ukraine. And so as currently there are there is a civil war essentially going on in the eastern part of Ukraine between uh, Russian backed separatists, people who want to break away from the central government of Ukraine and want to be part of Russia and people who want to be part of the Ukrainian government and support the idea of joining NATO and the EU and things like that. So that's what happened in 2014. Now, uh, flash forward to 2020, the civil war has been going on since 2014, still continues to this day. There has been another push to get Ukraine to become part of NATO. Um, and so obviously Vladimir Putin, right or wrong, he believes that this is a distinct threat to him and to his country. And so he is making uh, plans to stop Ukraine from being part of NATO. And it seems the way he's going to do that is by um, invading Ukraine by force and installing a government who supports uh, Russia's ideas of Ukraine never joining NATO, not being a part of EU, and keeping a sphere of influence in Ukraine. So that's generally the situation, Why, what, what Russia has to gain from it and why they're doing this and things like that. Um, there is another part of this that I think some, some are talking about, some, some aren't, but I think there's a, a, another factor here is that you know, I've heard a really good quote about Russian history, and it said that uh, Russian, uh, the Russian people don't look favorably on leaders who have provided them peace. They look favorably historically to leaders who have expanded their territory. So my personal opinion, and just knowing the basic, some basic psychology of Vladimir Putin, is that he feels, you know, he's 70 years old now, he feels that you know, he's been in power for 22 years. He stated that the, um, the dissolution of the USSR, the Soviet Union, one of the uh, worst things to happen in world history ever. And so he feels that he has a, a, a fundamental obligation or a duty to secure a legacy for himself or for Russia to gain much more territory than, uh, you know, to gain territory that was lost from the glory days of the Soviet Union. Um, he is, again, 70 years old. He's been in power for 22 years. He's enriched himself beyond um, anyone's wildest dreams. He believes, you know, I, there's been statistics out there saying he's secretly the richest person on earth, uh, with double the net worth of Jeff, Be Jeff Bezos um, because of his controlling stake in all these oil companies and natural gas companies that he has. And so he's at a point now where it's like, well, what is he going to do, retire and just kind of hang out at his mansion on the Black Sea? Or is he going to um, try and make some sort of a legacy for himself um, by expanding what he believes the Russian empire, the Russian you know, country into Ukraine? And I think that is playing a big part. I believe there is a legitimate, he does have a legitimate cons security concern by believing that if Ukraine joins the EU and joins NATO, that is a direct threat to Russia's security. But I also believe there's another part of him, the psychological part of him, that's uh, playing into this idea of um, wanting to expand the Russian empire, bring back 
the glory of the Soviet Union. And so I think that is a, uh, a major contributor to what is going on here. And I think that is a, uh, a thing that a lot of uh, media pundits, uh, mainstream media outlets that are following this don't understand. They're saying, you know, this would be catastrophic and it would ruin uh, Russia's standing in the world and it would, everyone would turn their back, back on Vladimir Putin. He doesn't care about any of that. You know, he feels isolated as it is. And now that he's formed an alliance with China, he could care less about any of that. He could care less about what Ukrainian leaders think of him, about NATO thinks of him, the EU, the U.S. He doesn't care about any of that. He's, he, he, he sees this as a fundamental security threat and a chance for him to secure a legacy um, as he goes into the latter years of his life. And so I just want to talk about kind of the latest news about what's going on briefly uh, in Russia, Ukraine. And, and, and again, why I think this, this although, you know, the, the media keeps saying the invasion is imminent, invasion is imminent, why I think it actually is coming very soon um, in terms of the buildup and things like that. So uh, the president, President Biden, came out and gave a speech yesterday, and he said that he is convinced that Russia is going to invade, that the decision has already been made. When a reporter asked, uh, asked him, are you sure that this is what the intelligence says? Are you sure that Russia is going to invade? He said very, very clearly, yes. And when asked how he knows that, he said, we have great intelligent, intelligence capabilities. Uh, general Austin, the uh, uh, leading general in charge of U.S. Armed Forces, said that he believes this is not a bluff by Vladimir Putin, that there are logistics and things in place that signal to him as a military general that um, invasion is very likely, including logistics, supplies, uh, uh, medical supplies. There's uh, field hospitals being constructed. There's pontoons for bridges, all kinds of things that uh, would just be very, very onerous and expensive to bring on an exercise and you probably uh, a government probably would not bring those things this far, this close to Ukraine, unless they were planning on doing something with it. Um, and so what is happening now? Um, there has been a severe increase in the amount of uh, ceasefire violations going on, both between uh, the Ukrainian army and the Russian backed separatists, including, um, you know, some sort of Russian army elements. There has been. Um, shellings of 120 20 millimeter mortar rounds. There's been shellings of artillery uh, sized rounds. There was a kindergarten uh, that was hit um, by one of the Russian shells. Um, it's just the things are just extremely, extremely getting extremely heated. And every time that I go and check some of my sources that I have on, on, on Twitter or some of my sources I have from the military, the amount of shelling is just getting to levels that they haven't seen since this conflict began in 2016. So there's obviously some sort of ramp up going on. My suspicion is that the Russian government or Russian army told the Russian-backed separatists um, in these eastern regions to start increasing uh, their offensive, to start shelling the Ukrainian forces significantly more than they have been in the past in order to maybe provoke a response or to, to basically just start the, um, the escalation of tensions here. I saw that uh, two Ukrainian soldiers were killed by Russian shelling. Um, 
Additionally, there's been a lot of um, uh, what I call weird um, kind of espionage and sabotage going on. There was a pipeline, uh, gas pipeline in Ukraine that was blown up. There was a, uh, a, um, a Russian separatist uh, vehicle uh, blown up in what they call an assassination attempt um, uh, in Ukraine. And I mean, basically just the, the, everything is just ramping up to an extremely heightened level. And what I suspect is that, you know, the U.S. has been saying that there has been going to be a false flag that Russia is going to use as an as a impetus to invade as a pretext to invade. And that's, we've seen that throughout history. I mean, um, the Soviets um, bombed them or uh, sent artillery against themselves, rocketed themselves uh, in Finland um, to basically start a war there. The Germans um, uh, used the pretext, the false flag pretext to invade uh, Russia back in the 1940s. I mean, this is throughout history. This is kind of, uh, been the standard playbook, right? If, if a leader wants to invade a country, they create what's called a false flag attack, which is basically uh, a rallying cry or a reason to get their populations um, supporting them in this war. And so um, I suspect that Russia knows that the population of Russia does not support kind of military adventurism in Ukraine. And so they're going to be building a campaign of, of events that turns the Russian population against the Ukrainian population in some sort of a support for this war. And so there, it's not going to be just one false flag attack. It's going to be, give you multiple false flags attacks. It's going to be, um, um, you know, bombings, assassination attempts, terrorist acts. Um, I saw a report today that there's intelligence that, uh, the Russian mercenary group called the Wagner Group has been infiltrating into Ukraine and there's intelligence that they're going to attempt to blow up residential buildings uh, in Russia or in the um, uh, eastern part of Ukraine that supports Russia, the Russian separatist controlled areas, and they're going to blow up residential buildings and um, blame it on the Ukrainians. Now, there's a lot of, like I said, espionage and intelligence going back and forth. Who knows what really to believe here? But I think it's very clear by the amount of news coming out that there's some sort of coordinated campaign to uh, basically inundate people with uh, anti-Ukrainian um, or anti-Russian, depending on what side you're on, kind of news in order to get this uh, this population's kind of supporting this effort, um, both by Russia to eventually uh, step into Ukraine as a, you know, the pretext being that they need to step in and to protect the Russian speaking population in these eastern regions, or for Ukraine to say that, you know, uh, we need to arm ourselves and fight back against Russia to get to get NATO to support Ukraine and the Ukrainian military much more than they already have. Um, one of the scariest things that I saw was the uh, Donetsk separatist military did a full mobilization, basically saying anyone between any male between the ages of 18 and 55 in these um, uh, separatist controlled areas must must report to a mobilization station and must be um, um, volunteer or join the uh, the movement to fight what 
they call is the imminent invasion of Ukraine into Russia. And anyone who, any male 18 to 55 who does not report to a station um, for full mobilization will face criminal penalties. So um, there has been this, this, this weird um, news that I've been seeing where, where these uh, separatist areas say that Russia is going to invade them, or sorry, Ukraine is going to invade them, that Ukraine is going to um, launch an offensive against them. There's been maps um, and all kinds of stuff being sent out by uh, these Russian-backed separatists, basically saying that Ukraine at any day now is about to launch an invasion against them. So you have NATO and you have Ukraine saying that Russia is about to invade us. You have Russia and Russian-backed separatist areas saying Ukraine is about to invade us. So there's clearly a lot of psychological operations, a lot of espionage, intelligence, and a lot of games being played by both sides here. And it's just very obvious that these tensions are, are, are ramping up. Um, and I think they're going to ramp up to a point where they hit ahead. And there's uh, once serious shooting starts between these two sides, it's going to just escalate into a full-blown shooting war. And so I think um, with, the, with, the, with the evacuation of these rebel-controlled areas, I don't know if you saw it the other day, but um, Putin said he would offer money to any of the uh, refugees who evacuated from the Luhansk or Donetsk area in the Donbass into Russia. Um, there was, they were providing buses for them. They were providing the money and, and weight and trains to move from these areas into Russia. So now you have the uh, Russian-speaking population being evacuated from these uh, Russian separatist-controlled areas. You have all this espionage, terrorist attacks, assassination attempts going on, and you have the full military mobilization of these areas. It just seems to me that it's, we're at basically the precipice of uh, sort of a, a, an armed conflict that has the potential to escalate into something really, really terrible. And so, um, you know, not only is the support going into these Russian-backed separatists, but there's estimates now that three-quarters of, of Russia's entire army is stationed on the border of Ukraine within 30 miles of Ukraine, both in Belarus and in Russia. Um, so again, that is a, a, a seriously strong force that is very unlikely that this, this amount of troops and this amount of firepower is being placed on the Ukrainian border as a negotiating tactic or as a bluff or a threat. Um, it is, it is very expensive to keep this many troops, this much logistics, this many things on, uh, you know, forward deployed. So it's just very likely that that this is not a bluff. I agree with General Austin's um, kind of uh, analysis of the situation that Putin is not bluffing. These troops are moved into forward deployed areas for one reason, and that's to uh, launch an invasion of Ukraine. So now that we know this, we have this, we, we, we see that these things are ramping up. We see that this, that this uh, conflict is reaching the precipice here. What can we do? What, what, what's going to happen to the markets? Well, like I've been saying for a long time, the one of the things that is going to react strongly in the markets is, is oil and natural gas. Um, I saw a statistic today where um, Gazprom, which is the uh, Russian, um, can, you know, Russian government controlled natural gas and oil company, said that um, 
Europe has expelled 95.4% of their natural gas reserves, meaning they only have about 5% of reserves left for the winter. And what you have here is is uh, any conflict that happens with Russia, there's the uh, potential for the United Nations, NATO, or just the U.S. on its own to sanction Russia, um, hitting them basically where the biggest exporter is, natural gas and oil. And so this has, if they do, if Russia does invade, the sanctions that are going to be placed on Russia are going to take natural gas and oil sky high. I mean, probably 10% plus oil is probably going to go up 10% in a day. Natural gas is going to probably go up 20, 30% in a day. Um, other things that are going to spike oil, I mean, uh, uh, gold, gold is going to go above $2,000 an ounce because it's, it's a, uh, a safe haven play. When people get scared, they rush into gold. They're going to rush into oil because of the supply constraints that are going to happen from sanctions. And the equity markets are going to take a hit. You know, um, uh, it may not take a hit, you know, over the long term or forever, but there's going to be initial, an initial negative equity market reaction to a serious shooting war in Ukraine, both because the sanctions that are going to come from the West are going to affect uh, world and global finance. So that's going to just cause an immediate negative effect. And because whenever there's a serious geopolitical threat, um, you know, especially with these sky high valuations, markets are going to react negatively. And so, but I think that the biggest play is the biggest money is going to be made uh, both in oil, natural gas, gold. And I think uh, put options on the equity indexes here is probably a smart play. Um, again, these are just predictions. I don't give financial advice, but but my predictions are those those areas are going to do very, very well um, when and if Russia to, Russia invades. Um, and so and, and so, yeah, I mean, three quarters of Russian's army on the Ukrainian border, 125 battalion tactical groups. They have uh, uh, troop carriers with parachutes on them. They have armored personnel carriers. They have tanks, attack helicopters, uh, you know, logistics supplies, field hospitals. I mean, they're at a point now where I think they're ready to go at any moment. And I think that they're just building the uh, pretext for that in terms of these, uh, this, this espionage and these conflicts that are going on between the Russian-backed separatists and the Ukrainian army. Um, very, very excited to announce that on Monday, I'm going to at, at 12 p.m. Eastern, which is uh, 10 a.m. Mountain Time, 9 a.m. Pacific. I'm going to have Mark Rosano on the podcast. Mark is a geopolitical expert. He's been specifically in the area of Ukraine and Russia. He's been on uh, CNBC, Bloomberg, um, all kinds of podcasts. He's just very well known for for understanding these kind of geopolitical tensions in this Eastern European area. Additionally, he's a uh, commodity trader. He has his own commodity trading firm where he specializes in uh, forecasting and, and using geopolitics to forecast how markets are going to react. And he's going to be on the podcast on uh, Monday at 12 Eastern, uh, 9 a.m. Pacific time. And I'm very excited to interview him. I've been trying to interview him for a while. I'm really interested in hearing his thoughts on how um, how this whole thing is going to play out. And so if you're, if you want to hear that interview, make sure you tune in live, uh, Monday, 12 o'clock Eastern Mark Rosano. It's going to be one of the best podcasts I've ever done. And Wednesday, 11 a.m. Eastern, 
um, which would be 8 a.m. Pacific. Um, we're going to have the host of the Serious Report on the podcast. And what he's going to discuss, it's going to be very interesting as well, is he's going to be discuss the um, ways that Russia and China are allying together financially, both in trade and with a monetary system to avoid uh, future U.S. dollar sanctions. And so this this will have a huge effect on on the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency, as the the U.S. being the hegemon in the world and being able to impose our you know the U.S. the United States's will on other countries um, by using the U.S. dollar as the primary financial weapon. And so these are going to be amazing week of podcasts. We're talking talking to some serious experts in both these areas. And if you're at all interested in in uh, how this Russia-Ukraine situation is going to play out um, on a world stage, on a financial stage, on a global stage, uh, make sure to tune into those podcasts. And again, um, if you're interested in, in the Warren letter, kind of I go into a little more detail, a little more analysis in the Warren letter of what I can discuss you know, here verbally as opposed to uh, in written form. Make sure to go to the warrenletter.substack.com. Sign up for um, uh, the Warren Letter subscription and you'll get it right to your email inbox. Uh, a weekly newsletter that goes a little bit more in depth. I include charts and analysis and things like that and what I'm thinking in terms of uh, my trades, geopolitics, crypto, um, and precious metals. And finally, um, as most of you know, I'm a, a licensed uh, land broker in the state of New Mexico. I specifically work in the areas of uh, rural land, recreational land, ranching, and hunting properties. So if you're at all interested in, in, in anything in that area, you can reach me. My email is russell, R-U-S-S-E-L-L, at haydenoutdoors.com. Um, again, I will see you all on Monday, 12 o'clock Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. We're going to be interviewing Mark Rossano, uh, a geopolitical expert in this area, so you don't want to miss it. Thank you all so much for listening to today's podcast. Again, pray for peace, hope for hope that diplomacy can work, but you also have to prepare for the worst possible outcome. And it looks like that outcome is going to be uh, a shooting war in Ukraine uh, uh, involving Russia. So again, just prepare for that. Follow the news. Follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at retirement right. That's at retirement right. And again, thank you all so much. Have a great weekend. And I appreciate you all listening to the podcast. I'll see you all on Monday.